This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show that's devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, I'm doing a series on living with breast cancer. My guest tonight is Dr. Sheila Cassidy. Sheila comes from England, where she's been the medical director of a hospice for 10 years. She then went on to work in oncology for a further 10 years. Sheila has also led breast cancer support groups for several years and has written several books. The one that seems perhaps the most relevant is called Sharing the Darkness, and it's about the spirituality of caring for the dying. Sheila, welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. It's good to be here. I want to start out by asking you, what is it that got you interested in working with breast cancer patients? Well, after I left the hospice, I worked in the oncology department, and I suppose I've always been interested in the younger patients because I identify much more with them. And two two of the young breast cancer patients came to me and said that they were really desperate to meet um, women their own age who had the same problem. So your thought was, I can do this, I can help them meet each other <coughs> by doing a group. And and I, well, <coughs> and so I thought it it would be a, good, a possibly good idea to bring them together, and it just happens that I went to a conference in London, what's called psycho oncology, which is the psychological care of cancer patients, and there was a woman and a man there who talked about groups, people from America, and I decided that I would you know do the same as they were doing. Uh huh. So in some ways, it really came at first from a request from a patient. Very much so, from two, two very lively young women, one called Alison and the other, I can't remember her name. Uh-huh. And so in these groups, what did they want to talk about? Well, I arranged them, it, 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 <laughs> I arranged them to be 50% free space, space to talk, 50% free space to, for them to talk about anything. Um, particularly about the issues that were important to them. And then the second half, after we'd had um, a piece of cake and some tea, the second part, I would run like a small seminar in that I would, at the beginning, I asked them to uh, tell me what are the things they wanted to know about. And it was very much about what the cause of breast cancer was, um, why they got it, um, and then about the treatments, about chemotherapy, about uh, hormone therapy, and then certain issues such as the impact upon their children, the impact on their spouses, and some of them, one group particularly wanted to know about um, diet uh, and exercise. Other groups weren't particularly interested. So I asked them what it was they wanted, and I taught them on that. I see. So it was half educational and half more support. It was half educational and half uh, space for them to talk yeah. And so I actually am quite interested in some of those educational topics. Maybe we can come back to them. Yeah. But I want to start first with what were the subjects that, what were the themes, you know, you did this over five years. So in listening to the kinds of things that they were struggling with, what were some of the themes that recurred that were clearly um, that they struggled a lot with? I would say that the emotional issues were fear primarily, fear of what it was going to do to them, fear of the treatment, but in particularly fear of dying. Because yeah. I think to everyone who gets breast cancer, they fear that they're going to die. So there was that. There was anger that um, very often there was anger at the doctors, at the way they'd been treated, particularly if they're general practitioner, their home doctor, had missed it. We had a, a group of young women from one of the country towns 
um, who's and the GP had missed a number of cases there. And they were very, very angry. I can imagine. And other issues were their relationships with their mothers, their relationship with their children, and in particular, relationship with their husbands, and the fact that very often they had a almost complete loss of libido because of the illness, but in particular because uh, one of the treatments for young women whose breast cancer is hormone sensitive is that they were rendered menopausal. And so for a girl of 33, suddenly to be rendered menopausal like a woman of 55 or whatever was extremely hard and they wanted to understand about that. So the group was it became a safe enough space that they could talk about sexuality and how it affected them. Yes, the group was right from the beginning. The group was a closed one, which means that it was for a set time. We set it for eight weeks and that no new members could be admitted after the first session. So right. everybody got to know each other and really very much to love each other. Wonderful. So let's. I would like to talk about some of the some of the issues that you raised that start with the fear of dying, which seems uh, really powerful. What did what was helpful to them about that? Was it just being able to have a place where you could even speak it? I, I can imagine in their families, their, their families would have so much fear of their own about it that they it would be hard to talk mm. about it. One of the things that became very clear was that the majority of families were desperate for the person to survive. And so they kept on saying to them, you must be positive, you must be positive. Because I suppose there's a deep intrinsic feel that if you're positive, nothing can get you. There was, in fact, a big research study, I think in the 70s, which showed that women with what's called a fighting spirit did much better than those women who were helpless and hopeless. So that was one of the reasons that I ran the group to try to engender in these women um, a fighting spirit. But sadly, when the work was repeated, it didn't actually make all that difference. But I do believe it makes a massive difference to quality of life. So interesting, though, because I can imagine feeling that one is failing at having a failing a fighting spirit, and and that who would you then go to if you felt if you did feel hopeless? Because of course, people have times when they do feel overwhelmed and despairing, and and could, could people express that without feeling that they were somehow bringing everybody down? I'd just like to say at the beginning that I think that one of the important factors in how much support any patient is going to need is to know whether or not they have a confiding tie. And this means that whether or not they have someone to whom they can speak their mind. And sometimes this is their mother, sometimes it's a sister, and sometimes it's a girlfriend. And if they didn't have that, they would then, the group was more, all the more important to them because right. it rendered them very much more vulnerable. That makes so much sense. Mm. But was there a tension then in the group between this feeling of I must have a fighting spirit that actually helps me live versus, yes, but in fact, actually, I'm, I'm so scared and, I, and I, I am feeling like it's not working. I think that in the particular groups that I ran, we didn't talk much about fighting spirit. The, the, the way I selected those groups was that they were all women recently diagnosed. So if someone is, has just been diagnosed, although you can say that statistically their outcome of survival is this or that, people are always defeating the statistics. 
I ran another group, which was women in whom the disease had recurred, and that was <clears throat> very much more difficult. Yes, because there people knew that they were going to die, but I don't think that the threat of death sort of overcame people throughout the group in the first、uh, lot of people. Right, because they were very hopeful. Right, so I can imagine the issues were very, very different there. The issues were very different, and I I ran two of the groups、um, with people with、uh, recurrent disease, and it was very difficult because the women were at a, diff- a very different place. Some of them were near to death, and some of them, I calculated, had another couple of years to go. And it was that I think that the strength of the group is when people have a lot in common. Yes, and I can imagine for those who. Who weren't dying immediately was quite frightening to watch. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So, sort、yes. of feeling like here's the path that I'm about to tread yes. myself. Yes. I mean, that's why facing death is so hard, and why working with the dying is incredibly demanding, although very satisfying as well. Because we all ultimately have to face our own mortality. Oh, indeed. Yes, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and my guest is Dr. Sheila Cassidy. Talking about working with breast cancer and the fear of dying, I want to shift now to the impact on the partners. And、um, you know, we've talked about the woman's own sense of sexuality, but breast cancer in particular, you know, impacts the partner not just because, assuming it was a straight couple, you know, he was afraid she would die, but also that she's lo- may have lost her breasts or may have had disfiguring surgery. How how did they talk about that, and what did couples find was helpful to them? I would say that the majority of the women were humiliated and afraid if they had lost a breast or they were disfigured, and they thought they wouldn't, their husbands wouldn't find them attractive. The husbands, by and large, were extremely understanding towards the women, although I think they found it difficult—not the disfigurement, but the the loss of libido.、Mm. Um, There were a few very abusive husbands.、Um, I remember there was one husband who, when a woman had a a weeping, recurrent tumor in her breast and was putting sanitary towels on it, he took the filthy towels and threw them against the wall.、Um, some people are very, very abusive. Right, and that pre- preceded the yeah, whole thing. But、right. o- others are. Are very helpful. The, as I say, a lot of the husbands are desperate that they should,、uh, women should be positive. But then again, there are husbands who are really, really good and alongside the women. So it varies enormously. And then, in terms of the impact on the children,、um, when you gave your more informational part of the group and you were talking to them about it. What did you recommend that they should tell their children, particularly in the beginning, when they, if someone is newly diagnosed and fully hopeful that they've had it removed and it's done? I believe that it's wrong to tell children that mummy might die unless you know until such time as death is an inevitability. And so I would say that mummy is ill, that mummy has to lose her breast. Um. <laughs> little children sometimes call it the booby. I remember one little girl saying, "Mummy, where's your booby gone?" Yes.、Um, so I think it's always better with children to be、um, up, up front, to be honest, but not to be too honest about things that mightn't happen. That's one thing I would say. And the other is that the women who are single mothers
um, and get breast cancer are incredibly vulnerable. There was one young woman who um, had, I think, three little children and was having chemo. And one of the little boys said to her, Mommy, why are you so lazy? You spend so much time in bed. Mm. So that sort of thing, you know, little children who are unable to understand is very hard. I can imagine, not to mention not having someone to share the caregiving work. Absolutely. The sheer work of parenting. I want to shift now to talking a little bit about your own story. Typically in in this show, uh, my guests are people who've struggled with something personally and then gone on to offer something professionally. In, in, In your case, it's really the opposite. You were doing this work, and then tell me what happened with your own diagnosis. Well, I retired at the age of 65 in 2002, and three months later, I realized that I hadn't had a mammogram for a couple of years, and so I rang up and said, I think I'm due a mammogram. I hadn't had one for four years, that was it. And um, they said, oh, sure. So I went, and I'd had a number of mammograms before, and although I always hated them because they hurt, because I had very small breasts, they'd always been fine. So I wasn't in the least bit afraid. And then uh, after they'd been done, the the doctor came in with a bit of a long face, and she told me that they had found a tumor in each breast. And I was, oh, devastated. Mm. Immediately very, very frightened. Um, I'm not married and I don't have children, and but I did have a new puppy. And I can remember lying there crying because I thought nobody could explain to the puppy if I died. Yes. And I guess people would feel the same with little children. Yeah, so immediately your mind went to to death. Oh, instantly to, to death and yeah. to the impact on the people, on those that you loved. Yes, yes, and <clears throat> so then tell me a little bit, so that you have you have actually not just one but two tumors, mm-hmm. and knowing you know you had been teaching about radiation therapy and chemo and surgery and so on, so you knew so much about the treatment. How did you decide what would be the best treatment for you? Well, my. My treatment was very much, my my mind was made up because I'd been on HRT for, I think, about... That's hormone replacement therapy. I'd been on hormone replacement therapy for something like 15 years. And so in a sense, I knew that I was at risk. But I was so convinced that it was the cause of my vitality and youthfulness. Um, And I thought that if two tumors have come, Lord knows what other ones are, you know... (laughs) starting to know what other cells are starting to change within my breasts. And the other thing is that I was very keen not to have radiotherapy because I am an asthmatic and I get breathless on exertion. And I felt that radiotherapy to both lungs would possibly damage my, you know, exercise tolerance, the, you know, the amount of exercise I could take without getting short of breath. Yes. So I decided that day that I wanted um, to have both breasts removed. So you had a radical mastectomy in both cases? Not a radical. I had a simple mastectomy in both cases. So I had a a sampling of nodes, which means they took out about four glands from my armpit, and they took away the whole of each breast. Uh And the difference with radicals, they didn't remove the the muscle on the chest wall. No, no, I don't think anybody does radical mastectomies anymore because the research shows that just a simple mastectomy, the survival is the same, if not better. Okay, so I want to I want to know more about the mastectomy, but before we go there, I'm I didn't know that you'd been on hormone replacement therapy before, and did you struggle with beating yourself up for that? I mean, was there a way that you uh, just 
How, how was that for you? No, it was all right because it had been my decision in conjunction with the um, the gynecologist. And I was so well and I looked so so much younger than my years. And my brain was sharp and, uh, you know, my, my joy was high. Hmm. So um, I was convinced that that was the cause. Although, funnily enough, after I'd stopped it and I'd had tamoxifen... I didn't look any older, and I don't have any less vitality. Ah, so in fact, it was you all along and not the pill. In fact, (laughs) I think it was me all along, but not the pill. But it took me a long time to realize that. Ah, You could give yourself the credit. Oh, yes, (laughs) yes, absolutely. It's all in the genes. Right. Well, so so there you are. You make this decision. You know about radiation therapy. You, You know, you are a physician, so you know about your lungs and how that might affect you. How... How, when you told people that loved you, when you told your doctor you wanted a bilateral mastectomy, how was that received? The surgeon was quite upset. Um, and the radiotherapist said, no, no, it wouldn't damage my lungs. But I guess I just felt so strongly that the chance of having a third or a fourth tumor, I could somehow imagine the cells changing after all those years of hormone treatment. And so I just knew that that was the right thing to do. And I was so firm about it that, that they went along with it. And did you have fear? I mean, for a woman to lose her breasts, you know, so often our breasts are connected with our sense of being female or femininity. And were you afraid how that would change? And, and if so, did it change? Was it what you expected? I had very little fear, I think. As I say, because I'm not married... And because my breasts were always small, they were never my my greatest feature, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, other women certainly were devastated if they lost a breast. Um, I think I was very pragmatic about it. When I came round from the anaesthetic and I felt my chest and it was flat, I felt a sense of loss. And funnily enough, it nowadays I mean I hate the way my chest looks with the scars and because I'm too too fussy to wear prostheses I always look a funny shape because my chest is flat and then my tummy sticks out with the middle age spread but um, it's never been a big issue so did they propose reconstruction to you and how did you decide about that they didn't offer it to me then and I wouldn't have accepted it because I've always worried that with reconstruction would mask any recurrence. Funnily enough, it's been offered to me since. I was chatting with a plastic surgeon um, when I was having a, something else done. And he said, oh, I could, I could, you know, do a reconstruction. And we talked about, I suppose the only thing I've considered was having implants um, because they can be incredibly good and it's quite a simple procedure. But I feel very strongly now that I'm older because I'm 71 and I'm so well, I just feel it would be tempting Providence to have a general anaesthetic and time off, you know, the risk of infection. I see. So finally, it's not worth it to you. To me, it's not worth it. I mean, I would love to be a better shape. I mean, one of the difficulties with the prostheses was I tried to 
to wear a small prosthesis, but in fact they rode up and they were always looking high, and that was very irritating. And then they gave me the ones that they thought the nurses gave me the you know the, the expensive ones, and they they look quite good, but I can't stand the weight of them and the warmth and the itch, and I just hate them. You mentioned earlier, though, with reconstruction, you were concerned that it might mask a recurrence. Does that, in fact, happen? Well, I'm sure it doesn't because they do so many reconstructions. I guess that was the early thinking, and maybe I clung to that idea. But I'm quite sure that my colleagues wouldn't do a reconstruction if they worried about it. And also, um, they're very cl- careful to take the the tumours away. So, And also, when breast cancer recurs it very often recurs um, in a distant spot. Right. So not so much in the breast to begin with, but somewhere else. No, no. Right, I see. So um, I know the treatment that you also did have in addition to the surgery was hormone therapy, the tamoxifen. And Tell me a little what that's been like to take. Well, I feel very irritated by people who choose to hate their medication So many people, for example, hate their antidepressants, they hate their hormone therapy, and I felt that this was a life-saving drug, and I was enormously grateful to be given it, grateful to the people who'd invented it, grateful that it it, would increase my chance of survival. So I wasn't prepared to be negative about it. Having said that, there is another drug called Arimidex, which um, is now used, um, I think, in, it's instead of tamoxifen and is supposed to have better results. But the uh, surgeon told me that I would probably have a much higher incidence of arthritis if I went for that. And as one of the difficulties over the last few years has been arthritis in my wrists and my feet, um, I chose not to go on to a Remedex. Mm-hmm. And so has it, in fact, resulted in the loss of libido that you had known might happen? Yes, I would say that it has resulted in in a loss of libido. Um, Being the age I am, being not in a sexual relationship, this is of no problem to me. What I haven't lost is my vitality, my sparkle, my good skin, all of those things which make me feel a woman. And I think it's worth saying here that my breasts never made me feel a woman. They were, you know, nice and useful. But what makes me feel a woman is my heart, my personality, my compassion, all of those womanly attributes which are much more of the personality than of the body. So you've really, uh, your internal sense of femininity is really clear to you. It's very clear to me. It is in no sense diminished. So good to hear. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Sheila Cassidy about breast cancer, both working with women who have it and then becoming one herself. Sheila, I want to shift now to the fear of recurrence, which I know so many women live with and struggle with. And I'd like to hear from you. Do you do you fear it? When does that come up? How How do you live with that? I'm very lucky in that I had a tumor which was highly responsive to hormone therapy and also it was a slowly dividing tumor. So my risk of survival, um, my, my chance of survival was of the order of 80% 
chance. And I think knocking up to about 90% with the tamoxifen. So for me personally, the fear of recurrence at a logical level was was not big. Having said that, every time I get a lump or a bump, I mean, for example, I thought that I had a lump in my armpit at one stage. So it only takes a very small thing to set off alarm bells and make me rush to the doctor or start worrying or think about dying. And I think that this is completely normal and common for all women. Yes, and and were there things that the women in your groups or that you have found (coughs) help you with that? I know that some women, they have to go back for an annual checkup and then sort of brings up all the fear that something will be found. Um, What what helps you manage that fear when it comes up? I went for... for, um, I went for checkups initially every four months then every six months then every year and now after five years I've stopped going and I guess I would always be nervous but like any unacceptable emotion I was able to control it and not let it you know affect my behavior. So and also what I'm hearing you say is that after five years that five-year marker really has freed you you're not you're not needing to be so vigilant and monitor yourself so much. No. Um, also, I know too much about it. And I mean, I worked for 10 years in the breast cancer clinic, working with the patients on follow-up, not with the new ones. And very often, um, people would, when, when recurrence came, it often came in the bones. So the presenting feature was was pain or a lump or somewhere and I think a very small proportion of the recurrences were actually diagnosed in the clinic. They were nearly always diagnosed when people became symptomatic and again the very cruel truth is that once you've got a distant recurrence of breast cancer your prognosis is inevitable. Um, How long you will last depends a lot on the tumor's ability to respond to or susceptibility to chemotherapy. But I don't think anyone really survives inevitably um, once they've got recurrent disease. Let's hope that as things change, they will. I have seen people live for 20 years, so you can always go on hoping. So for you, I mean, it sounds like you knew rationally that your chances of long-term survival was very good. Yes, I did. Um, but you've, you know, you've written about caring for the dying. You've worked in hospice yourself. How did your work affect your own fear of dying when it came so suddenly that first day or since? Sometimes I think about it. I think it's more to do with being older than worrying about the um worrying about the tumor coming back. Every now and then I think about dying. And there's a quote from a poem by, I think it's Macaulay, to every man upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. Um, And that comes. And I push that to the back of my mind because I'll deal with it when it comes. At one stage, I thought I would never, ever want to go to the hospice. Now I think that if I had bad symptoms, I would want that. Um, But it's very hard to know before. So I try not to think about dying. I think about living, and I think that's the best way to go. Mm. Do you feel that it actually inspired you to really pursue your dreams or take risks or live more fully? I think I've always lived fully 
as is humanly possible. So I don't know that it's altered, but I think if I thought I was going to die, I would try very hard to live each minute to to its greatest fullness. I'm... I remember once reading a a quote, probably in the Reader's Digest or something, saying, unpack your suitcase and live. And I'm a great unpacker of suitcases and living wherever I am. We are going to have to end. And I know you had a poem you wanted to share that has been powerful for you in this process. Yes, it's about the, it's about trust in God. Um, And I'll read it to you. I first read it when I was in prison. Go down into the plans of God. Go down deep as you may. Fear not for your fragility under that weight of water. Fear not for life or limb. Sharks attack savagely. Simply let go, and you will be held as a mother holds her child, and against all comers is his shelter. And that's by Archbishop Helder Camara, who worked in Recife in northeast Brazil at the times of persecution. Dr. Sheila Cassidy, thank you so much for being my guest and speaking with me so openly. No props, babe. (laughs) (laughs) This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And I was talking to Dr. Sheila Cassidy about living with breast cancer. If you have a request or a suggestion for a future topic, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. 